Hello. Hello. We're back. <laughs> we've been we've been away for a while. Yeah, we missed one. That, seemed... that was my fault. Well, I don't. When you, you know. Wait. Let's say welcome to the Kate and Vince Kelsa <laughs> podcast. Yes, that's what this is. Episode uh, five. I think we're on five. Five number five, and uh, when you when you talked me into doing this, you said, "Oh, you know, you don't have to do like." You don't have to be like regular, you know. You can just do it whenever you feel like it. You know, I never. Right? I didn't say that. No, I thought that's what you said. I thought no. you said we didn't have to. We have to have a schedule, or else, or else we won't keep it. That's true. You have to have schedules to make you feel guilty when you then don't don't uh, fulfill your responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> schedules are important. Well, all right. So we're <laughs> we're like uh, two weeks off or something. We're one show off. We missed. A, we missed. We didn't post anything two weeks ago because I was doing away doing book. Thing. Yeah. How was that? Did you enjoy that? It went really well. I was in California right after the book came out for just like ten days, and I went to the Booksmith in San Francisco, which is such a good bookstore, and um, the Central Library in L.A. Is that a bookstore or a no, library? No, the, the downtown, the huge, beautiful downtown library, mm. which I had stayed literally next door to when I uh, toured to L.A. and um, with the theater company I worked for. And I walked past it every day to get to work, and it's this big, beautiful old building. And I've never, I never got a chance to go inside. Mm. And it's really cool. You would recognize it. It's in a bunch of movies. Yeah. It's a very iconic downtown L.A. building. Okay. And they've got a great uh, teen section. So uh, we did a little event there. It was good. I assume people know what we're talking about, which is Kate's novel, her young adult novel, Fans of the Impossible Life, which was published at the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's been, like, real busy. Yeah, doing all that stuff. Not only the trip to uh, to California, but around here, the New York, New Jersey area as well, doing parties. We had and some readings. parties that was really fun. Yeah, we just did a uh, the official book party in New York on what was that Monday, mm. and I roped Richard Barone into playing <laughs> with me because I wanted to read this one chapter from the book. And he uh, accompanied me, and it was so special. Yeah, really. I think we're gonna try and we have video of it, so I might put it up on my on my YouTube channel so people can watch it. Oh, I hope you do. Yeah. You know that I met Richard right around the time you were born. Mm-hmm. Like maybe eighty. You were born in eighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met Richard in eighty-one, mm-hmm. maybe. So I've known him, and and you've known him your entire life because yeah. you've seen him perform and in all kinds of uh, situations, both with the bongos and then for most of the, this time now as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. And we were remembering the other day the downtown Messiah that used to happen oh, at yeah. uh, the bottom line, and he's always everywhere. He's a man with... Uh, uh, just like an an impossible amount of energy yeah. and drive, and he is so warm and giving as well. Yeah, it's re- he's really a remarkable person. But somewhere in an attic, there's a painting. There's a painting. 
Mm-hmm. Does anybody even know what that refers to anymore? Everybody mm. knows about the painting in the attic, but do people know about the portrait of Dorian Gray? I don't know. Have you ever actually read that book? I did read it back in high school. Yeah. It's uh, Oscar Wilde. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think good. more people know it from various film versions over the years. There have been a couple, like back in the, uh, you know, the, the middle part of the 20th century, yeah. There were film versions of it um, that were kind of almost like horror films because you'd see the, right. the face, you know, turning decrepit on the painting. And That was a big obsession, I feel like, in, in like 50s horror was a weird like something somewhere is aging, like mm. a weird horror about aging. About aging. I feel like there were like multiple Twilight Zone episodes and and weird movies mm. about fountains of youth and and then all of a sudden you become a disgusting old crone. <laughs> oh yeah, you, you know you, what I mean. Yeah, well, there was that the famous um, Lost Horizons was yeah. a, a film that told the story of going off to uh, like Shangri La. Uh huh. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right. Time like stands that. still, but if you leave, yeah. Then, then you turn into uh, an old, decrepit thing, and eventually you turn to dust and blow away. We don't have stories like that anymore. Maybe everyone's just okay with a lot of it now. A lot of it came from a lot of the 1950s stuff. Came from the fear of the the bomb, the atomic bomb. Oh, that's interesting. Because that was like where all those Japanese uh, monster movies, you know, Godzilla and all those movies came from. Right. Was somehow this this fear of mutation uh, and, and nature, not nature, but yeah, nature being manipulated by this force bigger than nature and turning everything upside down and part of that could have been the aging process mm-hmm. or time itself being uh, turned upside down i like that that's okay. interesting all right i'll take it so what we've been doing here on the kate and vin skelsa podcast since we began um late summer mm-hmm. is uh in these early days we were we've been exploring um each of us asking the other about things that we've never really talked about all that much. Kate interviewed me, then I interviewed her. And then we kind of got into this thing about my early days in radio at WFMU back in the late 60s. Uh, It was my college radio station at the time, Uppsala College in East Orange, New Jersey. It no longer exists, the college, but the station exists, WFMU. And uh, I was there and was the person basically in the late 60s who was responsible for it becoming this freeform entity. And uh, uh, the last episode of the podcast, we played back a recording of a night during the Democratic National Convention in August of 1969 where your mom, my wife, Freddie, was out in Chicago. It was 69? 69, yeah. yeah. Oh, I said 68 on mm. something by accident. That's all right. I think that's because I made... No, it, it was 68. I'm sorry. Was I'm, it 68? I don't know now. Well, look it up. I always make that mistake and... um. Well... 
I made the mistake la- last time when we talked about it. <laughs> Wait a good. minute. Wait, You're I consistent in your mistakes. I have it right in front of me. Here, it was in 1968. It oh, was, I was right. You were right. <laughs> you were right, and I was wrong. Because, yeah, because the, uh, the, the convention would take place in the even-numbered year. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the president that's elected in the even-numbered year is inaugurated in the odd-numbered year. Mm-hmm. Elections are always in even-numbered even. years. I don't know why I can't remember that. So anyhow, Freddie was out in, in Chicago. She was working for the, the um, who's he what's campaign? McCarthy. McCarthy. And uh, she calls me in the middle of the night. I'm back on the radio. And uh, it was kind of a, a weird, sonically distorted recording that we played. But I cleaned it up a little bit. And I think we got a lot out of it. We got some interesting response from people. Who've uh, listened oh, yeah? to it? Yeah, a lot of a lot of people at your your book party the other night. Uh, a lot of your old ERS people were talking to me about it, and oh, they were funny. they were fascinated by it. Yeah. I thought it was fa- I found it fascinating. Well, what we promised to do at the end of that show was play a recording from the final night in 1969 when. The crew that I was working with at uh, at FMU, we decided that we were going to just leave. Basically, we were going to close when down the station. When in the, the year station. was this? It was uh, well, that summer, summer of '69 was Woodstock, right? The Woodstock Festival, right? And I was a, one of the people who thought that Woodstock, rather than being the beautiful. Uh, flowering of the counterculture was in fact the nail in the coffin of the counterculture. Because it was, it was actually mainstream. It was not counterculture, but just by the nature of its size. Yeah, yeah, and by the fact that there were um, that there was this sense of the corporate world looking at it and saying, "Hmm, what can we get?" Look, how can we manipulate this? How can we uh, sell, sell to this market now? They finally saw that it was real. You know, it was a real market. To me, it was like, I mean, I wasn't there. So I don't know. If I had been there, I might have a whole different feeling You're just jealous that you it. missed out. I could have gone. I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to go. I didn't like big crowds. <laughs> oh, we don't like crowds in this family. <laughs> like that. So you were... Anti, were you actually anti Woodstock? You were vocally anti. Yeah, I I had for uh, a couple of summers prior to Woodstock, there had been an event held in. Uh, it was there was a band called Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys, who had a one of the members of the band had a house outside Woodstock. Um, and every summer there would be this festival, this gathering in the field behind the house. And it would be a couple of thousand people would come up from, from the city in the summer to get away, just like people would go to um, uh, the, the cottage communities up there in the Catskills, you know, right, to get right. away from, from the city, that whole Jewish culture at the... Um, in the Catskills at those hotels and the cottage communities because it was cooler, you know. Yeah. It was, uh, you just wanted to get away from the hot city. And they would 
do these festivals basically in Cat Mother's backyard. <laughs> and they were real and they were you sort of had to know about them. They weren't advertised. It was just like a community thing. And it was very home homegrown. Okay. And it was the impetus. It was the spark of the idea for, well, what if we did this on a bigger scale? Some other people, you know, came in and decided to blow that up. And they basically appropriated, you know, the whole vibe of those smaller gatherings. And from the get-go, I remember a lot of us feeling like, oh, this is just it's just a ripoff of our culture. Right. You know, this is not what we're about. And so there were people in our circle, in, and I was certainly one of them, who thought that the whole thing just didn't smell right. It didn't feel right. It didn't look yeah. right. And uh, um, we didn't buy into it. And then once it was over, there was just this sense of, like, um, there was like a foreboding sense because it was 1969 so it meant the 60s are over and the 60s were so clearly identified with a certain kind of excitement and a certain kind of a blossoming of ideas and music and culture and art and and self-expression and all that it's like well what's going to happen when the 60s are over Mm -hmm. and then it seemed like things were just getting darker you know there was the whole manson killing in in uh uh in la and then later that year was the uh in december i guess or november i forget when it happened this was after we took the station off the air there was that rolling stones concert at altamont that actually somebody was killed at you know the hell's angels were may or may not have been involved or whatever you know it's just like there was just this darkening sense and nixon was president Right, you know, and like, and at at locally at FMU, we were getting word back that the college was going to crack down on what we were doing. That they were finally paying real attention to what was going on on the air, the politics of it, and some people were making a stink, alumni and parents, and we heard through the grapevine that there was going to be some control placed on us Mm -hmm. and none of us certainly i was not interested in being controlled by the college and i i guess i was tired you know um it sounds weird now to think that a guy who's 21 years old would be 22 however old i was at the time that i would be tired but you know how we poured a lot of energy yeah you know how we said that that time seemed to last forever. Yeah. Then that year and a half that we were at FMU was like, you know, 10 years in right. in my life now in terms of, of the intensity that we lived. Well, it's interesting also because if you, I mean, you had all this like youthful enthusiasm for this thing that you've fully poured yourself into. And then... Uh, if you then are like, okay, what's going to be the payoff? What's going to be the attend? We want to grow this thing. We want to bring this thing to people. If you're then looking at something like Woodstock and saying, oh, does that what is that what it means mm. to make something into 
something bigger? Is that what success means? I mean, I'm just interested in you talking about Woodstock. Do you think that there is or was an authentic way to bring that counterculture to an audience that big? Or is it just the nature of something being that big and the fact that the amount of money and, and organization and, and, you know, structural whatever that needs to go into creating something that big is inherently a sellout because it involves mm. people trying to make money. Like, is there, it was there a pure way to turn what was happening in that backyard into something for more people that would be a success that wouldn't have been a disappointment? I don't think so. Right. I mean, it's I, I by its nature. Yeah. Yeah. I think by its nature, anything bigger um, would have would have just gone sour. It and that was the beginning of a whole of a whole period that we're still in now of um, of corporations and big business co opting any smaller idea. You know, it's like you do something, and then the next thing you know, it's a it's a fashion window at at uh, yeah, you know, uh, some big fashion store. I mean, everything is very quickly sucked into the mainstream now. It's very yeah. hard to exist um, and and make a mark in a smaller world and and re- retain control over that mm-hmm. and have it spread the way you want it to spread and not just the way corporations want to spread it. Well, it, I've been thinking about it a lot with the internet because I think, you know, it's hard to to be someone who's doing something cool and counterculture. Obviously, you, you do want to share that with people. You don't want to say, uh, this should only be for a few people. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be an right. elitist about it. Right. And if you really believe in what you're doing, it's something that you think other people are going to want to see. So the cool thing about the Internet, obviously, is then you have that ability, right? You have the ability and there almost isn't isn't a counterculture anymore because you just put something on the Internet and it's available to everyone. Mm -hmm. And part of the I feel like the definition of counterculture is, yeah, separate from the culture. And I think if you're on the internet, you the internet is the culture. <laughs> and I'm fine with that, but I get worried about the fact that um people spend so myself included so much time on it, and I think it's just in my own experience of of, you know, dealing with the communities online that I'm dealing with right now. It's a lot of really well-intentioned people that um, are activists and are speaking up about things and are using Twitter and Facebook and whatever to say things that in the past would have gotten said in that festival in that backyard. Mm-hmm. Everyone been like, yeah, man, that's right. And then, or, or, you know, you would have to, you'd mobilize a movement, you know, like it, right. you, no one would hear that single voice necessarily. And what worries me is that... Um, it is to a corporation's advantage that you stay on that website as long as possible because there are ads for you to read mm. and that is how they make money. Mm. And so I love like the sense of community and I think that the fact that like voices that were not empowered and not heard have complete access in a democratic way. But then I just get so like, guys... Find the fact that we're finding community, or that you're finding community, 
in a place where someone has something to be gained from keeping you on there mm. really worries me. Yeah. Because, I, and so I don't know, I've just been thinking about that a lot. Like, is there, you know, is this, is this the way, is this the way to bring counterculture and, and, the cool new whatever i mean even if it's not activism it's art it's you know you have a website you can post your art you can share this with people yeah it's like you're what you're saying someone is <laughs> trolling around looking <laughs> to make money well and and we live in that's the world we live in we live in a capitalist society you know so you kind of at a certain point you either you either go off the grid or you accept the fact that you live in this society and you just have to be vigilant. You just have to watch and make sure that whoever's, you know, manipulating is not going too far. I forgot to put on our tinfoil hats now. <laughs> like two lefties in the New Jersey woods. Like, they're, they're watching us, man. <laughs> they're watching us. Do you want to hear this tape? I want to hear it. All right. So this recording is a much better quality than that that recording from Chicago. I don't know why. I guess we just weren't able to uh, properly put phone calls on the air or something. And this, so this is the night in... Uh, yeah, what Do you know what time of year it's, it was? It's, it's late August. So this is about a year after that last recording. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the end of August, 829. Mm-hmm. August 29th, 1969. And you had, made, you had made the announcement. We made an announcement about a week before. The staff, we all got, I got the whole staff together, because remember, I was the program director. I was the sort of nominal, you know, leader mm -hmm. of things. And uh, uh, I put it to them, and I said, I, you know, I don't want to be around when they come in here and they put, start putting rules on us and stuff. So what do all you right. think? And, and I remember we had a vote in that common room. That, that we talked about. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a vote and people said, yeah, let's let's shut it down. You know, we just we're going to stop broadcasting. And it was their station. The, the college owned it. Yeah. So we just we'll hand the key back to them and say thank you. And everyone, the community around the station agreed with you. You felt like well, they, were... they were sad. The listeners were really upset. The listeners yeah. were really saddened by it. But, yeah, they understood what we were doing. And uh, there seemed to be this sense of inevitability about it, that it, it wasn't going to last forever. So here's the recording. It's very kind of chaotic in the studio. I mean, it's yeah. self-explanatory. You'll hear what's going on. But a few minutes into it, everything stops, and there's silence on the tape, right? And when I first heard it, I was like, oh, my God, oh, no, it drops out. What happened? And then I remembered. I turned off the microphones because I had to yell at everybody in the studio <laughs> because there was too much else going on. And I was like, it's a radio show. God damn it. You have to be quiet. What is all this? Like coughing and then talking and all. Oh, my God. So so <laughs> we'll we'll leave it in. I'll just. When it happens, I'll say this is the silent part because I want you to hear how long it <laughs> how long it lasts. <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. Great. WFMU, end of August, nineteen sixty nine. 
Um, shortly after midnight, I guess. The closet. That's really something. Hey. <laughs> there are 5,000 people jammed into this control room now. Um, wow, well, um... Hey, match? Anybody have match? Yeah, my face for. Let's, remember that joke when you were a kid? And every time how you hit the guy when he said it to you? Oh, you did a match. Yeah, I really, you know, I don't think there's there's much um <coughs> much much that's that's too terribly appropriate, you know, as far as music is concerned. We've played good music for a year and a half and um you know, you've heard it all and you know what it's all about and What's Holloman uh, sitting out there? Huh? Jesus, it's yeah. hot in here. <coughs> Isn't it? Tell me about it. Mr. Ed Holloman. I'm going to faint. You wouldn't. Uh, well, does anybody have a camera? Jazz Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> From 11 to 12. There's, there's is, is anyone? No, not no. the control room. Yeah, Mitch. Somebody's got pollen on them because I just got a twitch in my nose. I never get a twitch in my nose in here because there's no air. That means somebody walked in <laughs> with pollen and I'm going to sneeze. Um, what is this? Cold duck, Andre cold duck wine. It's grape juice. Gra oh, grape juice. <laughs> yeah, I forgot, you're not allowed to have wine in, in the control room of a radio station. I never had cold duck grape juice before. I mean, excuse me, friends. Hmm. Oh, champ, it is, like it's a bubbly kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Bubbly grape juice. How about that? Burgundy. 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 Oh, no. <laughs> Electric grape juice. Grape juice and a week old blowfish. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's here. Uh, Bird is here. Mitch and George and, and the oh, duck and Lenny and Fred, Fred and everybody's here. And there's a bottle of grape juice and. Um, Everybody who's had anything to do with with um, Freeform Radio for the past year and a half is here tonight. Um, which is really strange, because I, I was talking to Lou D'Antonio before <clears throat> about, um, uh, about um, the atmosphere around the station today. And Lou and I, being of um, similar ethnic backgrounds, have, um, have one thing in common, besides a great love for his wife. <laughs> We, um, hey, we're, 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 both, we're both extremely familiar with uh, Italian Italian wakes, which I guess are, um, I guess the only thing that, that comes close to an Italian wake is is an Irish wake. I've I've attended uh, in my youth. I was forced <laughs> to attend against my uh, my my own judgment and my own wishes. Forced to attend many wakes of you know like parents, friends, and things, and. Um, you know, I said Italian wakes are, are, are kind of unique, and uh, and that's sort of what sitting around this radio station has been for the past couple of days. Um, it's it's been a kind of it's been a kind of wake, in that uh, in that you know the thing that you've loved is dead, whatever dead means, you know. But dead is not necessarily an evil thing. Um, and dead is not necessarily a negative thing. It's just it's it's passed on, you know, or it's passed through, 
which is a term that I always like to use. And, um, you know, but it's laying there, right? It's in this coffin. Here's the part where I'm yelling at them. It's in this coffin, you know. And we're all sitting here. And, um, and we're looking at it, and we're saying things like, my, doesn't it look awful in death? You know, as opposed to at an Italian wake, you say, oh, he looks so good. He looks so much better. You know, and then the wife sits there and everybody shakes it. And I actually, somebody came to, a lot of people have come to the station tonight. And somebody actually came to the door, an old friend of mine, and she took my hand in both of hers and she said, I'm so sorry. Which I could never understand at wakes when people go, I'm so sorry for your troubles. Yeah, what is that? You know, and, 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 and to top off, like the whole wake funeral thing, <clears throat> The, um, the owners, the owners of the radio station and the owners of this building who are responsible for the security of the building have, um, of course, uh, expressed a desire to, um, to maintain that security once we leave. So um, they're going to put a padlock on the door, right? Um, only they couldn't wait. <laughs> they couldn't wait for us to leave. They came over today, I sent, sent um, um, they sent the grave diggers over today with, uh, with this piece of metal and they put some screws into the, uh, uh, the door frame and they put this thing up, this, um, this thing that they're going to put a padlock on. And it's like, it's like once you get to the cemetery, once you get to the cemetery and the priest is reading the thing or the minister and everybody's standing around in their black shawls and it's raining and it always rains, once you, you know, the grave diggers are standing next to the grave with their spades in their hands and there's dirt in them, you know? I mean, just imagine how you'd feel um, as they're laying your loved one into its, um, into its final resting place. There's these, there's these four guys, man, chewing gum, smoking cigars with, the, with dirt in their, in their shovels, waiting to cover it up because that's their job. You know, and like they got to work overtime. They've got to work until two o'clock tonight you know, with their little locks and their little dirt. It's really, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. I've never, um, I've never been through a, a funeral of, um, of something really that I've, that I've loved so much. Uh, both my parents are still alive and like friends and, and you know, quote, loved ones. You know, the, the only people in my life that I've ever lost through any kind of death have been distant relatives and cousins and, and you know, uh, my parents' political cronies and things like that. I've never really lost anything that has been extremely close to me. And um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of um, difficult, kind of difficult relating to it because in, in, in any kind of a loss of an important thing, I guess you, you never really feel it at first. You know, you just sort of go through the motions. I could never understand how women, um, especially like Italian women and Irish women who have to go through those wakes could do it. How they could cook a meal for 8,000 people on the day that their husbands are laid in the grave, right? The wife comes home, she gets out the spaghetti and she does the thing. You know, I, wow, you know? Like, like a man that she's lived with for all of her life or for maybe a year and a half. 
has um, has just gone, and she's cooking this meal, you know, and she's not showing any signs of it at all. And like that comes later on, you know, it comes later on, and I guess we all have to um, we all have to sit around and wait for our later's on or our later ons. But it's 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 um, was it Van Gogh? Was it Van Gogh who, when he was in the asylum just before his death, after he had um, cut off his ear and after he had attempted suicide, was in an asylum and um, he was he was painting, and a nun came over and um, you know one of the the nurses, and he was painting the field, and out in the middle of the field was this little figure, and. Um, the woman came over and she, she looked at it and then she looked out the window and all she saw out the window was the field. There was no little figure in the field. And she said, well, I recognize the field, but, but who is that? Who is that figure? And it was a little tiny cloaked in black figure who looked like he was perhaps harvesting the wheat in the field. And, um, and Van Gogh looked at the nun and said, that's, um, that's the figure of death. And, and the nun kind of drew back from it, and she said, oh my, oh my, what a sad thing. And Van Gogh said, no, no, sister, it's not sad at all. It's not sad at all, it's a happy death. You know, because that's, that's the frame of mind that he was in after, after going through and leading the kind of life that he had led, you know, which had caused him to want to even destroy his life, could view death as being a happy thing. And realizing that, um, realizing, realizing that his death didn't mean death at all, because he was leaving behind this fantastic collection of um, uh, of his life's work, and he was leaving behind his art. He was leaving behind canvas and paint, and um, you know. And I'm, I'm I'm really sure. I mean, that whoever governs us, whether it's a god or whether it's some kind of power or the intergalactic world, whoever it is uh, who, who's governing us, I'm sure at, uh, at, the second, at the second of physical death lets us know, uh, lets us know whether we've succeeded or not. And I'm sure that uh, you know, as Van Gogh lay dying, man, whoever it was said, yeah, yeah, okay, man, they're gonna dig your paintings, and it's okay, and, you know, you'll be hanging in the Museum of Modern Art, and people will be paying millions of dollars for them, and, and, they'll, and they'll understand, you know, they'll see that little lone figure in the field, and they'll understand that it's a happy death. You know? That's what WFMU is about, and that's what Freeform Radio is about, and that's why leaving the air is not really a sad thing, yeah, I mean, it's not really, and it's not a maudlin thing. I just sit around and cry. Oh, Jesus, won't leave me. Ah, oh, it's terrible. Oh, the year and the good times and the bad times. It's not that at all. You know, it's not that at all because we're leaving behind our own special paint and canvas. You know, we're leaving behind you, you know, all of you. And each and every one of us here at the station and each and every one of you out there who has listened to the station is the artist and we've all painted and created on each other you know and we've all made something of each other and given something to each other 
And, and that's even more important, man. That's even more important than paint and canvas and all the Van Goghs and all the Picassos and all the Rembrandts and, and Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. That's even more important than that. You know, because we've, um, uh, we've worked on, on real live people. You know, on real live human, breathing, loving, cursing, sweating people. You know, and that's where, um, that's where art is the most important. You know, some of the most beautiful, creative artists and poets in the world are people whose work is never seen, who never make anything tangible, but are the people who have created a lifestyle. You know, and that's their art, their life, what they do every day, and how they breathe, how they treat other people. And that's the work of art, that's the poem that nobody ever really appreciates. Nobody ever really appreciates it all. And um, I, mean, I think that's what we've done here. I think that's what we've done, and I'm proud to say it. And I'm very proud to say it. And I didn't think we had done it. And I was very depressed. And I thought we had failed. But over the past week, since we notified all of you about the wake and the funeral, um, your response has been fantastic. And your response has been, um, you know, an unsolicited testimonial to what you've gotten from, from this station, from this experiment. And, uh, and I realized, man, that we didn't fail at all. And we didn't fail at all. You know, so like I'm getting the same flesh that Van Gogh got just before he died, because Van Gogh never sold a painting in his whole entire life, and people put him down, and they told him he was crazy, and people laughed at his work. And just before he died, man, he got the flesh, and he said, wow, okay, I succeeded, I did it, and it's a happy death. And I'm getting that flesh, I've been getting it for the past week, you know, that we succeeded. And it's, um, you know, it's a happy passing through to something else. Right, crew? Right, right. Where'd the crew go? I was sitting there and they all left. Too hot. It's too hot in here. Yeah. It's too hot in here. Smoke. Come on. Lou, what do you say? Doesn't say anything. Nothing to say. He blew a kiss to me. I told Lou D'Antonio I wanted his body today. Lou D'Antonio is, is the second man, the second man in, in, in my life that I wanted to make love to. I can't tell you about the first one. <laughs> but I'd like to. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, he turned me down. Yeah, I don't know. This is just... Um, I guess my my sex life, you know, will have to uh, have to suffer. <laughs> Gee whiz, I really don't know what else to do. I really don't know what else to do. I could ask you once again to come to um, to the gathering Sunday at uh, the South Mountain Reservation in West Orange, off Northfield Avenue, a place called May Apple Hill. Um, Sunday from 11 o'clock in the morning until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and bring food and blankets and guitars and smiles and, um, and whatever. And you come and we'll all get together. 
No, I mean, that's the greatest thing, the greatest thing, really, about working here. And I just realized it tonight. It just hit me about a half hour ago or so when I came in and I sat down and I started playing that song and the phones lit up and I started talking to people and all these people were calling up to say goodbye or calling up to say thank you or you know calling up for one reason or another and I realized and it's something I've known all along but I've never really put it into words before is that you know all of us here have made the most fantastic collection of friends that we could ever hope to make you know real true friends and now, you know, like the friends are parting, uh, or we're going to go our separate ways. But nevertheless, the friendships will remain, and the friendships are deep. And it's been done through, it's been done through electricity, which you wouldn't think had anything to do with friendship, you know, with human emotion and passion and bodies and touching and kissing, you know? Electricity, man, we took this beast, this monster called the media, and we made it human, you know? We made it human, and we had love affairs over a telephone. That doesn't happen to us. That only happens when you're 14, you know? So only when you're 14 can you come together over the telephone. <laughs> Was that an Italian philosopher? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <coughs> so that, I think, is, you know, is... is is where we succeeded, I guess, uh, the most, um, uh, the most, I was going to say the most greatly, but that's not proper English, is it? No, that's where we succeeded the most. That was the most in, uh, in, in uh, managing to want uh, to break down the, uh, managing to break down the mechanical from, from this media. You know, managing to do away with all of that nonsense and yet still use it, you know, because I couldn't be talking to you right now if it weren't for electricity and, and pieces of steel and wires and solder and transmitters and airwaves and microsomic goojies, you know. I couldn't talk to you, but, um, but we've conquered those things, which is, which is what, you know, which is what the Aquarian Age is all about, which is what the Aquarian Age is all about, not, not anti-progress, but um, man controlling his progress, you know, and man using his progress and his inventions and his achievements to further his manhood and to, um, to further his humanity. And, uh, and in our small way, we've tried to do that here. And we've, you know, we've taught a lot of people, really, how to do it. And all of you are going to go your separate ways, and you're going to be spread all over the world. And, and you're going to remember, and you're going to say to yourself, well, well, you know, I should try doing that too. And you're going to start doing it, and it's going to build, it's going to grow. Yeah. And that's where the success will lie. That's where it will lie. I got to tell you that at the Italian wakes I went to when I was a kid, the thing that I hated about them the most other than having to look at that dead body with all the, you know, the tie and everything. The thing that I hated about the most was that people sat around and moped. And all the people up here sitting around and moping and looking at each other and saying, oh God, I won't see him again until the next wedding or the next wake. 
Anybody have anything to say? Huh? Anybody have anything to say? Lou, you got anything to say? I'm very insulted. You ha you haven't been uh, too observant this evening. I haven't stopped smiling yeah, since been, I sat down. Yeah, but you, you know, I'm used to Italian wakes. Yeah, you've been smiling a lot. Yeah, yeah, you know how to do it. It's a beautiful body. Huh? It's a beautiful body. <laughs> the station's not yours. Yeah, it was. I thought, oh, shucks. I thought I had a chance here for a second. Looks like a lot of Italian Yeah. Wow. Well. Wow. Well. All of you who sent money to us have your names and addresses on a mailing list. And once we all get together and decide what we're going to do, um, which will probably take a couple of months or maybe a million years, but once we all get together and decide what we're going to do, we'll let you know about it. We've got some plans kicking around, and um, you know we'll be back in another reincarnation. You know, someplace along the line, we'll slip in somewhere like we did here, um, and we'll kick the rotting corpse out and and bring life into into something somewhere again and then we'll you know spend our allotted time and then we'll pass through and we'll move on to whatever is um, destined for us next so um so we'll keep in touch with you because we um, we know who you are you know, we got your names and your dresses and we know who you made love to last night we know who remember the on the wall in the small studio there huh remember the graffiti that was on the wall in the Studio the graffiti on the wall in Studio Whatever Studio that is. Yeah. The thing that says life is just a pre brief interlude to an otherwise peaceful non-existent. Life is just a brief interlude to an otherwise peaceful, peaceful non-existence. Non <laughs> which is almost as good as Dylan's classic line, which is kind of the line that that I would like to um, uh, that I would like to hope uh, I'm basing my life on. Uh, he not busy being born, is busy dying. Hmm, which is the same thing. Wow, somebody called out. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. Did you want to say something? Yeah, a man named W.H. Hungerford once said, life is one damn thing after another. <laughs> That's true, That's too. That's my philosophy. That's true, too. Well, Joel is, um, yeah, life is one damn thing after another. Yeah, that's, that's true, too. And speaking of damn things, this is WFMU in East Orange, Freeform Radio, Freeform Radio, at um, 91.1 FM. As to what's going to happen to WFMU, we have no idea. We don't know. The station is owned by Uppsala College, and um, Uppsala College will have, to, um, will have to figure out something to do with it. Um, they did something with it for 10 years or so until we came along, and I'm sure they'll find something to do with it after we leave. Uh, if they can, you know, if they can remember which one of the grave diggers has the key to the padlock <laughs> outside. Um, I'd really dig waiting around and see, the, see they're, they're going to come by at 2 o'clock tonight to see if we're still on the air. And if we're off the air, they're going to padlock the door. And I really dig waiting around, like inviting them up, you know, doing a whole thing with them. But I don't think I have the energy 
um, or the strength or the fortitude or the crystal. Because every once in a while to wake, you got to cop out and go to the john and smoke a cigarette. You know, you just can't sit there all the time, and it's it's really kind of um, uh, it's really kind of silly and futile to um, to sit around admiring the you know, the body. <clears throat> um, so I really um, I don't I I you know I guess it would kind of hurt to see them lock the door. Uh, so maybe I don't want to I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that, huh? Yeah. Lori's here. Who? Lori. Lori Wyatt is here. Oh, wow. Hello, Lori. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, is everybody's here, friends. It's really swell. It's really swell. I think it's making a presentation tonight. What's that? The record, remember? Oh, yeah, I think I already took it. Somebody took it. Yeah, somebody took it someplace. Someplace along the line. But what you know, my biggest hope, my biggest hope is that um, about six months from now, about six months from now, after WFMU is back on the air, and there are you know people playing uh, United Nations report tapes and scratchy classical music records and um, and things like that, and signing off at eleven o'clock at night. About six months from now, while all that is going on. Uh, some uh, some strange cat, or some strange little fat cat, is gonna wander in to WFN. He's gonna look around and he's gonna say, "Oh wow, yeah, radio station, man, I could dig that. Yeah, I could I could dig doing a thing there." And he sits down in front of the microphone and he starts doing his thing, and before you know it, it begins to blossom and grow and turns into, you know, another freeform radio or whatever it is that he's got in his mind. Yeah, I, I just, I really hope that happens. I really hope that happens. Of course, he'll have to operate in the same manner that, uh, uh, that the originals had to operate in. That is from scratch. That's an in-joke, friends. So they're all laughing hysterically at that. I'll explain it later. Oh. Yes, hey, ben, yeah. Can we say something about Larry? About Larry, yeah. Larry Yurden, yeah. Larry Yurden, Larry Yurden, yeah, yeah, Larry Yurden uh, is this maniacal genius who, um, in uh, in many ways, was was uh, very responsible for what happened here at Freeform Radio, and Larry's floating around in the hills of Vermont somewhere, um, uh, uh, spreading his um, his good charm and vivacious lifestyle. To the to the hill people, you know, Larry. Larry's um, people are going to hear from Larry someday. They really are. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't take much more of this. Uh, so, well, in in the true democratic manner of WFMU, can we have a show of hands here? Can we go off the air now? Does everybody want to raise their hands? <laughs> no, ain't gonna do it. No, <laughs> no, but no, people say no. Well, yeah. Wow. Oh, kidding me, Lenny. I'm sorry about your head. Hey, can, can I say something about Dr. Uh, Robert Henson? Dr. Robert Henson? Yeah, I, I, I owe know. my entire uh, long live radio career to Dr. Robert Henson because he, uh, he, he learned me how to say jazz instead of jazz. <laughs> <laughs> jazz instead of jazz, huh? Wow. Is Lou going to say something about... 
Dr. What's his name, Perkins? No, 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 Dr. Henson. Oh, Dr. Henson. Dr. Henson, yeah. Dr. Henson was uh, at one time the program director of WFMU many years ago. And then I guess uh, Mark Kupperman is doing a favor for the station mm -hmm. that the people have correspondence that they'd like to send personally to any of the people here. You can send them to the Atlantic Weekly. Oh, oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, if any of you... Um, yeah, that's good. If any of you want to write to um, to individuals here at the station, if you send your your letters and your your poison bombs and things to the Atlantic Weekly, Box 68, Maplewood, New Jersey, Maplewood, New Jersey, and they'll forward it to us. Mark also said that if any of the listeners uh, oh. have any, oh. if any of the listeners have any opinions to express as far as the you know the stations leaving the air. Uh, you can write them, you know, write them to the Atlantic Weekly at that same address, and we'll try and print them. You know, he said he's going to do as much as he could. So, uh, you know, just to show, you know, send a copy to the to the college and let them see what's going on. That's the the Atlantic Weekly, Box sixty eight, Maplewood, New Jersey, which is a very very good newspaper. What are you doing that? Who did that? Why? Take a meter reading. I don't want meter readings tonight. I'm not interested. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not interested in meter readings tonight. God, it's hot I've in here. I always wanted to do that thing. That's what I did. Oh, you never did that before? No, I've never done it in your show while you were talking. Oh, during my show. Well, you can do it again if you want. Can I do it. Yeah, go ahead. Just don't turn the carrier off. No, it says too much. That's all. Hey, public bang. service, I've got to turn <laughs> off the gas. Would you mind telling me where the main is, fella? <laughs> yeah, it's in that room over there. Oh, all right. Uh, turn off the gas in this room. Yeah, it's, it, out. it's all happening. It's all coming down. Uh, next thing you know, the phone company will be here wanting all the phones back that we stole from uh, them. What phones? <laughs> Well, it's um, it's been a it's been a good year and a half, and um, you know uh, all the cliches and all the words, a happy year and a half, and a sad year and a half, and a hassle and a joy and everything else. And in about five or six weeks, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna go, oh God, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna react to it, but I can't really react to it now, in any way other than to thank all of you. From, thank, you. Uh, thank you. From very deeply inside of me to thank all the people who worked here at the station and to thank all of you out there who worked for the station in whatever way that you worked for the station. And, you know, that we should sort of uh, part with, um, with a fairly well, which is an important word if you stop to think about it, fairly well. And we should part with a promise that... Um, uh, that we're all going to live up to what we've created here. Even with the belching and the noise and the nonsense. That one came from the heart of my soul. And we're all going to live up to, uh, to what we've created in whatever way, you know, in whatever way that we possibly can. And if we can leave each other with that promise, then um, uh, then I guess we can rest assured in the knowledge that we'll all be together again, you know, eventually, sooner or later. Because um, cause there ain't that many people got that promise in their minds. And, um, and uh, you know, the old cliche about birds of a feather getting together. 
you know, it'll happen, we'll, um, we'll all get together again, and um, sit around and belch, you know, and uh, play good records, and watch equipment fall apart, and get through winter nights and hot summer nights, you know, we'll all, um, we'll all do it again sometime. A lot of people have been wondering what the last, um, what the last song to be played here at um, at Freeform Radio would be, and since it's kind of my responsibility, since this is my time slot, um, I've been thinking about it for um, for a week or so, and I really couldn't uh, think of anything to play because you know, um, there are a lot of songs that would be appropriate, but um, most of them are kind of meaningless in this context, anyhow. You know, I mean, they'd all work, but uh, but there would be something you know that's something special that would be missing from them. And um, I had kind of a very emotional, you know, beautiful conversation on the phone with, with a stranger, you know, but a friend a little while ago. Um, and, and the person said, are you going to play Heaven tonight? And I said, just very naturally, I said, yeah, sure, that's my sign-off song. And I thought about it, and I figured, well, yeah, that's the best thing to play, um, a song that Buzz Linhart, did, that Buzz Linhart recorded. Uh, for us here at WFMU, um, which has many meanings, you know, and you can take it on a lot of levels, but uh, but there's really only one thing you can do with a line like "Heaven is the sweetest place that I have ever known," you know, except to want uh, to maybe change it around a little bit and say that um, that you are the sweetest place that I have ever known. You know, so I guess maybe it would be fitting and proper that. Um, that that be the last song to be played here at, uh, at WFMU. I don't know if I can do a sign-off or not. I really don't know if I can, if I can recite that silly thing. I'll try. At this time, WFMU. Freeform Radio in East Orange, New Jersey leaves the air. Uh, Freeform Radio. Uh, leaves the air uh, for um, for an indefinite period until we can find some other um, institution to corrupt with our evil ways. WFMU is owned and operated by Psala College in East Orange and broadcasts on an assigned FM center frequency of 91.1 megahertz uh, or megacycles depending upon what position in the sky the moon is in at any particular given moment. And uh, so an effective radiated power of 1,500 watts by authority of Spiru Tiagni, my high school gym teacher, and the Federal Communications Commission. WFMU maintains what is about to become a padlocked building at 298 Prospect Street in East Orange, New Jersey, and a dead transmitter uh, high atop First Mountain, Marcella Avenue in West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, normally, after reading or reciting that, uh, the next line is something like, we'll be back on the air sometime tomorrow morning, whenever it is that George Black decides to wake up and get his ass over here to the station. Unfortunately, uh, uh, George doesn't really have to get up anymore. Um, which I'm sure he's very happy about because he never liked doing the morning show anyhow. Um, but we will be back on the air 
somehow, sometime, somewhere. Yeah, we'll be back. Uh, so I feel like General MacArthur. <laughs> I shall return. Where's my corn cob? Um, this is, you know, it's it's really, um, you know, the last show should be so important and should be so beautiful and, and, and meaningful. And yet it can't be, you know, it really can't be. There's nothing you can really do, you know, to, uh, to make it what it ought to be. So, like, what it ought to be should be in your mind and what it is should be what it is. And, uh, and you know, when you feel like it, you can live in your mind. And when you feel like it, you can live in the is, uh, which, is uh, which is the only way to live which is the only way to live, really, in the mind and in the is, whichever, um, whichever makes you the happiest uh, at any particular given moment. So I'm gonna push, 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 push the release switch on the tape deck for the last time. Let it warm itself up, make a little noise, let it grind away. So it's all set to go. And I punch in cart machine two on the board, punch the start button, bring up the pot, and hope that the card has re itself. Yeah. Yeah, it re itself. And, um, and say goodnight to you. Say goodnight to you, and, um, and say, uh, say fare thee well to you. And to say thank you. And um want to say peace.
your first first last show my my first last show yeah how many <laughs> last shows have you had do you think not that many not as many as i've done like last shows and not said that they're the last show because uh -huh. i didn't know sure you know most of the time when i left the commercial stations that i worked on um you just you know, didn't just show up didn't the next show week. up the next day <laughs> right when i left when I left WNEW FM the second time, which was in New Year's Eve 2000 into 2001, which you're actually on that show because you and mom called me up at, really? at, at, at around midnight to say Happy New Year's. Uh-huh. Uh, that we knew was the last show, but I knew I was coming back to FUV in a few weeks, so it wasn't, right. like, very sad or anything. Right. So that and this and... This past spring. And this past spring were the, the sh shows Last where I consciously knew they were going to be the final show. Did you think, I mean, you're saying on this, in, in this show, you say, we'll be back, which is, I mean, very sweet and democratic of you to speak about the station as a community. But is that a royal we? <laughs> I mean, did no, you think, I, I what did you think was no, going to happen? I didn't, I had no idea. And I had no desire, really, to pursue it. I knew that. Um, the the one thing, aside from being extremely embarrassed by this <laughs> and by the rambling <laughs> and the and the crankiness and the well, you, you know, yell at everyone and then everyone leaves. Everyone and left. Like, Where did everybody yeah. go? Because you just <laughs> wanted them to all sit. Yeah. And, listen yeah. to you and then when invited they should speak right, right. <laughs> i didn't want all that noise and all that kibitzing and stuff uh yeah you go on a good rant at the beginning about van gogh and death <laughs> that's good i mean you were you're 21 20 uh 69 so i was born 67 so i'm just about 20 going to be 22 
You'll turn 22 that in December. Yeah. So you're yeah. 21. So I'm 21 still. I mean, you're... I mean, you're remarkably not pretentious. I mean, I think where you get to by the end of that recording, it reminds me very much of who you are now. And I was really impressed with how sincere you are and how really eloquent you are in speaking about this ending. And the funny thing about the guy belching when you're trying to do this really (laughs) sincere thing is it really shows how much it meant to you and how seriously you took it. And that's such a moment of like, oh yeah, these are like 19 and 20 year olds passing, you know, cold duck around the room mm-hmm. and being like, yeah, and that, <laughs> what I, is the station? Like probably half of them are stone. Yeah. I think there was a lot of beer. I yeah. Think that, the, that in the face of that, you took this really seriously and you were, even if you didn't know you were going to continue in radio, you were, I mean, you were a serious young man. These things meant something to you. Oh, yeah. And you were well-spoken, and re- I found it very moving listening to it. Yeah. To well, that thank ending. Thank you, thank you. I mean, your Van Gogh rant is hilarious, but it's, like, <laughs> indicative of your age, that you would be like, death, uh, this yeah. is how I like to speak about death. <laughs> I've experienced no death in my life that meant anything to me, but I, I know a lot about it. And you know you know what I'm actually describing there? Has nothing to do with the reality of Van Gogh's death. It's the scene the at the end of the, the movie Lust for Life yeah. with Kirk Douglas. You saw a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a fictional movie, which, by the way, is a beautiful film, but, you know. Well, it's, and I uh, love that moment, actually, it's so little, where you say, Winnie, remember, was it Van Gogh, Winnie? And you, like, uh, just reference her, mm. and that it's a very sweet, like, she was already your audience. You know, mm. it was already like, right, Winnie? Like, you weren't actually inviting her to participate in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought there was more participation. I I didn't remember that well, it was all me. Well, you yelled at everyone. I yelled at everyone. And they all left. <laughs> Some of those people are no longer with us. The ones who became... that That's what I wanted to say, was that yes. the prophetic stuff that I said, which was, you know, you, the listener, are going to take this experience and go out into the world... Where so many people did. I mean, I met people for the whole rest of my life who said, I was listening to WFMU. I remember the night you signed off, and I owe my whole life in the music business or my whole life in radio to you because that's when I decided that if he could do it, I could do it. You know, there was a lot of truth in right. the prophecies that I had or the or the well wishes that I had for the future. And when I talked about the friends, there was a core group of friends who remained friends for their whole entire lives. Yeah. Lou D'Antonio, the guy who... Yeah, do you want to tell me, is there something you want to tell me about your relationship with Lou? No, no, it never, <laughs> nothing ever, ever <laughs> developed. But Lou and I, there was a nice chemical thing between me and Lou. (laughs) Lou is no longer with us. He passed on and or passed through. He passed. What you like to say? Yeah, I like to say that. Oh boy, was I dumb. And George Black. And George. Who you could hear every once in a while in the background, but mostly the other guy who was talking, I think, was a guy named Kevin. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, that's that's the the part of it that moved me was just. 
the fact that now in 2015, I can look back and I can go, yeah, wow. And the fact that WFMU, when it signed back on the air, sort of was an attempt at freeform that gradually over the course of a few years became an even more remarkable freeform station than we were is still on the air today in 2015 you know so we did start there was a spark that caught fire eventually at fmu specifically but also in the greater world because there's literally tens of thousands of people who i know i I don't know them all personally but i know from experience that something happened to them in listening to those early days of 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 radio well and there was such a sense my early days right you know i don't mean the early days of radio but but i mean you know rock alternative rock radio well because that was the era when still everyone could be listening to one thing everyone could be watching one tv show Mm -hmm. that there were fewer people but then there were also fewer options and you guys had a signal that reached to new york city yep and you guys had a community and had musicians and had people that supported you. So, yeah, a lot of people. It meant, I mean, it's interesting to me. Is it the Velvet Underground that that is the famous thing of not so many people heard it, but everyone who did, started, everyone who heard their first album yeah, started their started own band. Started their own band, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, like nobody that. bought the record. Nobody bought it. Yeah. But everyone who did started their own band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I think in what you're saying about this thing of you kind of casting the spell of of this shall live on, I mean, that is clear that that, that was the intention you, you know, infused this experience with, which is probably why it was so exhausting, is that you weren't just doing this for fun. You weren't just doing this. Because, you know, do something in your free time and hang out and drink beer at a radio station. Why not? Mm. You had an intention with it. And you have an intention with all of your work that is uh, that that is about exactly what you said there. I mean, the fascinating thing for me is to see this roadmap that was laid with what you were doing there and how that was reflected in the rest of your career, which is why I wanted to start with this stuff is because it's everything, everything that you've done is in there and was in this experience of what you built at FMU and what your intentions were at FMU. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And now, I mean, I haven't listened to that recording in ages and I forgot most of what was there. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Yeah. Everything that I that I did from that point on is has its roots there. So yeah. you but you didn't think you were going to go back on the radio. No. You didn't think you were going to pursue a career in radio. No, I didn't. I didn't even know how, you know, I mean, to go into commercial radio. I, I, I worked for a while at WBAI, which was like the big brother of of what we were doing but that was a non-commercial member supported listener supported station uh but there was nothing that said commercial radio was going to welcome me i mean there was the beginnings by then of wnew fm on the air there were some stations around the country uh commercial stations that were doing alternative rock or album rock or you know rock other than top 40 rock as the format yeah but i didn't see how 
I was going to be a part of that. And what's interesting is that whoever it was who said, should we say something about Larry Erden? It was Larry Erden who eight, nine, ten months later, no, I guess it was a year later, called me out of nowhere and said, I'm working at ABC FM now. Um, You should come in. I can get you a job at the local station, which was WABC FM, which was a major radio frequency, which later became WPLJ, big, huge station in, in, in New York. So Larry was sort of instrumental in getting the whole idea of Freeform Radio started at FMU, and then right. he got me, really, got me my first job in in commercial radio. So There were a lot of good spells cast in that yeah. 45 minutes. Because also Larry was in Vermont, and then that's where Lou and, Lou and George, George ended uh, up eventually, in Vermont. Yeah, yeah. And it is true, you stayed friends with them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that... They always felt, I always felt in knowing them very much, your connection to this this moment, this year and a half of doing FMU together, that that was, and that that connection was something that sustained that friendship yeah. for then, uh, for many years, 50 years yeah. almost. And mom was involved in that as well. Right. You know, not just that she and I eventually got married, but... She was a main part of the station as well. So she was friends with them beyond being married or the girlfriend of me. You know, she was friends with them as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Lou was married. We we became friends with his family. Yeah. So uh, George, when he got married, same thing. You know, so there was like a, a, a group of us, a small but very tight group that's that came together mm-hmm. in that year and a half and uh and Lou did had a life. Lou did radio for the rest of his life. Yeah. I love what he says about he learned to say jazz. Yeah. Jazz instead of jazz. Jazz. <laughs> yeah. Here we are in Jersey. Every <laughs> once in a while you guys your Jersey accents come through. There yeah. are a couple words. Yeah. I love that though. Jazz instead of jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did radio and I remember I was visiting uh him and his wife Carol when um I was in Vermont on tour mm. and I was there one day when he was getting ready to go do his show and it was so funny because it reminded me it was like you it was like oh there's like Luke you know he was wearing the uniform that you both always wore like black shirt black <laughs> pants he was like getting his he's like where's this CD where's that CD right, right. you know he had to have a snack it was like I was like, oh, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is my, this is how we do things. This and, is my people. And Lou and I influenced each other in terms of the way we talk. So there's sometimes when I hear Lou in, in myself and I hear me when I hear him, when I hear recordings of, yeah. of him, it's hard to know sometimes who came up with it first. I love uh, that. We just sort of, you know, like we we influenced each other very much. Yeah. Mm. And you guys never hooked up, huh? And never no, got together. No. So you were saying to me while we were listening, you you did fall into a, a depression after this. Yeah. Oh, night. yeah. The, that whole, that whole winter um, that followed was, uh, yeah, deep, deep depression. I finally, I, I eventually got out of it because I went to work 
at Poppy Records, which was the label that Towns Van Zant recorded for. Mm-hmm. And I had met this guy, Kevin Eggers, who was the owner of Poppy. And uh, he called me at some point that fall and asked me if I wanted to come to work as the promotion guy for this label. Now, they were connected to um, RCA Records at the time, so they had a really nice office in a, a building where RCA Records had their office on the corner of 43rd and 6th. The building is still there. It has a, a big photography exhibit space on the, on the ground floor. Uh-huh. 40, okay. 43rd and 6th Avenue. Yeah, I forget what what it, that photography place is called now. So I went to work. I didn't know what to do. I and I certainly and you, Were you going to classes at that point? Not really. No, no, I was out of school. I didn't go back to school until the mid-70s. Um uh-huh. But I I basically, you know, went into my office every day and closed the door and read magazines. Uh-huh. You know. I I, inv- I invented a newsletter for them called Poppycock because it was Poppy Records, uh-huh. so the newsletter was Poppycock. Good. Well, and Milton Glaser, one of the most famous uh, illustrators in the world, Milton Glaser designed the cover oh. for for my <laughs> newsletter, Poppycock, because he designed the the Poppy logo and the the poster of the the Poppy flower coming out of the cracked concrete. Um, so, yeah, I got to meet Milton Glaser when I was there. Did you regret shutting the station or you felt like you didn't have a choice? We didn't have Because you, you knew if you didn't shut it down, they were going to shut you down. Yeah, or they were going to change it so radically that I would never be able to work for them. Right. You know, because I, I knew from a very early age that I wasn't keen on being told what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know... I just couldn't. I was not a team player. I mean, I, the the couple of jobs that I've had where they were non-music related, you know, I'm okay. I can take orders. I can right. do. I can be a stock boy. You know, I can. Yeah. But when you it's know, your art form. Yeah. Don't I, tell me how th- to do no, this. Don't tell me. I can't. All right. It's like, yeah, if you're any kind of artist being told, make your art this way. Yeah. And then you is and then that's how you got hooked up with towns was through that job no i actually towns came out to fmu a couple of times Mm -hmm. and uh that's where we met and he would stay over actually he would sleep on the couch Uh in the apartment that george and i shared Uh uh-huh and uh but so i knew towns and i knew kevin the Uh guy who owned the record company so kevin said come be the uh the promotions guy he realized I wasn't accomplishing anything in the job. <laughs> so in January 1970, he said, um, Towns is going out on the road. There was this thing called the college um, the college campus tour thing or something that, that musicians could plug into, sure. acoustic musicians. They would go and literally spend a week, five days in each town um, and then travel you know, Monday, Tuesday, they'd travel to the next one and show up. And on Wednesday through Sunday, they'd play in the campus coffee house or the the uh, student lounge or wherever there was some, some entertainment locally on campus. And Towns had just gotten over a serious bout with um, uh, hepatitis Ugh. and had been told that Thanks. if he drank, 
to the extent that he normally drank, he would kill himself. And uh, I was told that if I went out on the road with him, my main job would be to keep him from drinking. <laughs> so, let's leave that. Let's leave that story there. Okay. Because I think we're going to, our next episode, we've got. We have a town's um, appearance, not on FMU, but on. From later. From later in the mid-70s on WNEW-FM, where he came by one Sunday morning and yeah. hung with me. So, we so we'll, we, we'll wait and we'll tell more about that. The, I like that the next chapter in your life is. Is you on the road with Towns, Towns and the impossible task of keeping him from drinking. Yeah. In the winter of um, Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. Okay. Every time we walked into any student center over the course of the month I was out with him, you'd hear, Because that was like the record of that winter. So was that that winter of 70, you think? January, February, March of 70, 1970. It was a whole lot of love. Yep. There's one thing I really like that you say at the end of what we just listened to, where you're saying like, what did you say? You said, you live in your mind and you live in the is. The is, yeah. And then... Depending on the day, you can pick how much of each one you need. <laughs> I was like, that's really good. Yeah, you live in your... You live in your mind, mind of your idea of what it should be. And then you live then in the you reality. And live in the is yeah, of the what is. it is. Yeah. But you can pick how yeah. much you need of each. Yeah, so unfortunately, some people back in the late 60s were unable to pick. Right. They were forced right. into, the, uh, into the mind, and they couldn't find their way back to the is, a lot of people. Yeah. But see, I wasn't, I wasn't a hippie, really. I yeah. didn't have, like, real long shoulder-length hair, and I didn't smoke a lot of dope. I mean, yeah. I smoked dope. It was around. You but know, would you but... smoke on the—you were sober on the air. Oh, yeah. Because that, that was your work. Yeah. It wasn't, oh, no, no. You were no. always sober on the air. Never, never fool around on the air. Right. Even though I sounded kind of stoned in that rap. No. Um, I knew you weren't. Yeah. Was, I could tell you weren't. It was just this pretentious way that I had of <laughs> talking. Much of it goes back to my my adoration for Bob Fass. Yeah. Who could talk that way and not. It sounds, listening to it, I mean, that's what's endearing about it is you can tell you're figuring out how he does that. Mm-hmm. That you've heard people do this, mm-hmm. and you're still figuring out how you can do it. Oh, that's nice of you to say. I, Thank cause, you. Yeah, I think that's, I, because th- I, that's what it was, and and you had, what's admirable is, and I guess this is also youth. This is like the hubris of youth. Is you had the confidence to try it, mm. you know, because you can't. You're not going to learn how to pontificate on the radio without pontificating on the radio there's no way to practice that so you you had the confidence to to imitate or to do your version of an imitate you know of what you thought you heard of Mm -hmm. what he was doing and that's really interesting to me to hear because again like this idea that the map of what of the rest of your career is in this is you you have spent your career, you know, pontificating at length on the radio, mm-hmm. but you figured out how to make it yours and to not make it 
something pretentious about the Van Gogh movie you yes. saw, talking about death that you have no idea about. <laughs> like, I don't know anybody who's died. But I know about death. Yeah, Let yeah, me tell you what I say about pretty, that. Pretty corpse. Yeah. So even though it's, I understand, of course, it's embarrassing for you to hear. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> Shall we leave it there, then, with the tease of Towns Van Zandt? We shall leave it there with the tease of Towns. Okay. Thank you for playing that for us. That was good. Thank you, Kate. This has been uh, another edition of the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast, episode five. Episode five. And uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back. Yep. With episode six, that will feature a recording from, I think, 1974 or five of Towns Van Zant live with me on the radio on WNEW-FM. The fun part of that, aside from Towns, yeah. is hearing the commercials, <laughs> which we're going to play in their entirety. Yeah. Because they're just, they're hysterical pieces of, of um, history. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we have to look forward to. Great. Thank you, and uh, congratulations on the publication of your book, Fans of the Impossible Life. Yeah, get that Kate's, little plug in there right Kate's at the young end. young adult novel is on sale wherever books are sold. Wherever. It's, it's a beauty. It's, um, it's quite lovely. If people want to write to us, we have uh, an address, don't we? Yes, uh, Kate and Vince Kelsa podcast at gmail.com. So you spell all that out, mm-hmm. Kate and Vin Skelsa, S-C-E-L-S-A, mm-hmm. podcast. podcast at gmail.com. That's right. Okay. Bye. Bye.